This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Hello and welcome to the Goad Kicker Podcast. I am your host, Carl D. Smith. Welcome back to the Go Kicker Podcast, episode 15. We're on our summer schedule. Not that my schedule is usually tight and uh, closely monitored, but hey, you know, we get them out there when we can. I was reminded today, it isn't that I forgot about the podcast, it's just I forgot to make an effort to record it. And for those of you who follow me online might be aware that I do things at weird hours. I have to do things when I can. So a lot of my novel writing, a lot of my podcasting, it happens in my car, it happens in between, you know, things at work that need my attention, it happens when my family's asleep. Um, I don't really have a time set aside where I have normal adult uh, waking hours that I sit down and work on my projects. Now last week was an exception, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but um, for the most part, when I'm working on these things, I tend to do them at a time where I sacrifice something else, be it sleep or, or you know, video game time, God forbid, or something like that. And so I actually didn't forget that I do a podcast, but I forgot to put it on my mental to-do list, and I've been so absorbed with my novel that's releasing um, that only things related to my writing have been on my top 10 priorities. So over the last week, I had a weird blip with my schedule at work that allowed me to have three unbroken days off in the middle of the week, which was perfect timing because my novel was entering its final stages of revision and submission and um, and uh, culminating to today. It's technically... Molab Monday. It's one o'clock in the morning here in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Uh, Monday, July fifteenth, the fifteenth episode. Uh, a little, uh, you know, synchronicity there for you fans of Paranormal Dads. Um, but uh, this is uh, that's probably not the right use of that word. But I'm going to say it, and make it sound smart, just because I want to say something about Paranormal Dads. But um, but my book does come out today. It's available Amazon worldwide. Um, if you use Amazon.co.jp, it's there. Um, if you use it, uh, Amazon UK, it's there. If you use it, United States, it's there, and so on. So um, it's available both in print and for Kindle. Moleb the Giant, A Tale of the Cardinal Fates. It's the first of my series of fantasy novels. I'm super proud of it, and I've put a ton of work in it. I don't know how anyone who does this as a side hustle or as a uh, independent writer trying to uh, make a career of it can possibly recoup any of the time investing uh, that goes into making a novel. Um, I just can't foresee, even if I wrote a novel as popular as something as Hunger Games, that um, that you would really recoup uh, everything that's gone into self-publishing a novel. It just... 
you miss out on a lot and there's a lot of headache and it can always be better and something else you would like to have done different. Um, and uh, the hard part is just being patient. And as my friend Tim Benson and others like Matt Beckner uh, encourage me just to stay the course and, you know, sweep up as many times as it takes to get everything off the floor. Uh, don't leave it just good enough. I've done that in the past and I've always regretted it. And I was glad I had good friends to remind me that, uh, you know, this, this novel deserves a little better treatment. Um, I will be superiorly bummed out the first person who buys a copy of my book and makes sure to let me know that they found a typo. It is inevitable that it will happen. It happens to the best of us, I'm told. Um, but uh, after the amount of wrestling I did with hiring a proofreading service and then continuing to edit and some of the changes I made late in the game and then had to edit it myself and then went to print and realized that there were some terrible mistakes. I think what I did was dial back the clock on a previous revision or something because surely the editor and myself would have caught a lot of those mistakes. Uh, prior to them going to print. And so there was a lot of cleaning up to do. Everyone who got beta reading copies towards the very end of the process uh, at a time when I thought it was safe to send them out um, probably got a pretty poor impression of what exactly was happening with the book. Uh, it didn't ruin the book, but boy, it sure looked unpolished. And so the the, the final product coming out being finished, uh, uh, the wife being patient with me to spend... Uh, I kid you not, I probably spent at least 10 hours a day, four straight days, um, on this book, uh, just tidying it up. I mean, the book was finished at that point, and, uh, and she was gracious and, and let me, um, let me, uh, do what I needed to do, um, hoping that I hit the home run, uh, she is not a reader herself. Um, she mentioned that maybe this will be the next Harry Potter, which is super cute because uh, uh, that she acknowledges that that was a, a huge phenomenon and how incredibly different and not even possible it is that uh, Moleb would uh, be able to reach that sort of audience. But you never know. Um, I think it's safe to say I'm not going to hit J.K. Rowling uh, level um, uh, fame uh, from this series, but I'm pretty excited to see where it does go because I am quite proud of it and I think there's a tremendous amount of potential for a fan base to support it and to uh, want more. And I will be happy to give more um, uh, as I've fallen in love with this project. So anyway, that's my self-promotion for the episode. That's a little bit what's been going on here. I just had to put that up front because it is indeed Moleb Monday. I'm pretty excited. Um, I just got off of work. It's nearing 1.30 a.m. And I eventually will need to go to bed. But um, I, I'm watching uh, way too often the reports come through Amazon to see if there have been sales. The interesting thing is, and this is a discussion I like to have when I do my uh, version of a TED Talk on self-publishing, is... Um, for those of us who don't weaponize the craft, who do it as hobbyists, um, there are people out there who have a science that they uh, monitor and, and market and figure out uh, formulas and so on. Uh, there, there's a handful of us out here that don't do that. 
And for us, we just look at the basic reports. And I've heard anecdotally that several people have ordered copies of the book even prior to Moleb Monday because, uh, spoiler alert, uh, it was available uh, all weekend. Um, I just wanted to make sure everything was settled before. Uh, I wanted to give myself a little window in case we had to pull the plug and uh, do a quick revision and upload. Um, but uh, I know that there's been copies that have been sold and um, they aren't showing up on the um, the reports. But some of them have showed up, uh, namely the ones that I have purchased uh, myself. So it'll be interesting when the dust settles to see um, first of all, if Amazon's being truthful with me uh, for what they owe me for royalties, um, which is also another discussion I'd like to have someday if anyone's interested because it's tough to make money doing this, you guys. Uh, it's going to be tough to even break even, to be honest with you. But um, it'll be interested to see if they're truthful, and it'll be interested to see volume-wise um, how many books um, I sell. In the past, I've been pretty giveaway happy. I want all my friends to read my book. I would rather have my friends read my book and uh, and give me their honest feedback and hopefully maybe write a little bit of something on Amazon than I would be to sell them a book. But by doing that, I don't ever sell any books because the only people I really have a strong market to are my circle of friends. So it's a real weird uh, situation to be in, and especially with me not tabling at the con this year, um, you know, I, I lost out on some of that, that stranger revenue, which is what you need. I, I discuss, I, I mentioned that constantly, uh, in, in, in the sparse areas where I try to re reflect on the whole process of being a self-published author, but the money that you need to really sustain yourself or to recoup your losses or to offset things like advertising, um, is stranger money. You need stranger money. You need those strangers who aren't your usual 10 people who are going to buy no matter what you publish, even if it's ill-advised or they don't really believe in the product, but they're going to do it because they like you. Um, you need the money of people who aren't like that. You need the money of people who look at the cover and appreciate uh, that you chose a good image uh, and, and paid the right artist to do that or uh, chose the right fonts. Um, those who are interested by your premise and willing to give it a, a read and then willing to follow that into the next book, um, God willing. So without that stranger money, it's almost impossible to do these things other than for self-amusement. And it's expensive self-amusement, let me tell you, um, if you want to do it on any sort of regular basis. So anyway, the start of Goat Kicker 15, it's Moleb Monday. I personally can't help but feel this is a turning point in my writing career. I feel like I've leveled up a little bit. I feel like my productivity right now and my will to be productive are in sync. And um, I have a lot of uh, lines in the water as far as some other projects I've discussed with other people uh, to see what happens. Um, I'm cleaning up some of the old stuff that I believed in to make it more viable. And um, we're going to start pruning the bush a little bit as far as uh, some products that uh, that just needed taken off the catalog uh, before the quality uh, drags uh, my name down a little bit uh, if new eyes would happen to find them. So exciting time for me. Um, I appreciate any encouragement that I've received from you guys. It's uh, both for the show and for my writing. It's It's been great. Um, I know... Uh, uh, 
it, it can't be said enough that the feedback that you receive is worth far more than anything else really uh, that you could receive in return for your creative endeavor. So thank everybody who's been very kind about Go Kickers Return and enthusiastic about my writing. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So I took a little time for myself over the last week and I just needed to like step away from the book. There was this sweet spot where I was, uh, everything was submitted. I couldn't do anything. I physically and, uh, and quite actually was locked out of being able to fiddle with anything related to the book. Um, I was awaiting my proof copy to come so I could begin to start reading it. Um, the file was just pending for review at Amazon. Uh, cover was accepted. Everything was done. Um, I immediately started to jump in and start fiddling with some other side projects I'd like to get off my plate. But um, uh, my mind was like in MOLA mode. And so uh, switching from uh, this fantasy world, uh, you know, intended for an adult audience, not that it's adult content, but it's not intended for children. Um, it was hard to shift gears into Bigfoot Jones. So um, I, I found myself with an evening when the kids all went to bed. I was filled with nervous energy. I couldn't fiddle with anything. Uh, and there would be lots of fiddling to come. And I just told myself, you just need to unplug and do something. And so um, that, I had two instances of that where I had no other, uh, no other sort of obligations. And I was able to just unplug and, uh, and to kind of clear the mind a little bit. And so what I did was um, one evening I sat and watched uh, Gremlins and uh, folded clothes while I did so, uh, just piled up all of the, the, the laundry and, and began folding. And um, it was an interesting experience because I have seen Gremlins numerous times. I saw it in the theater. Matter of fact, my mom, uh, I was so excited to see it. My mom was a little hesitant to take me because of the uh, content um, from the, uh, what she had seen from Leonard Maltin or or on the commercial, something that had raised a concern. And so um, she told me, if you read the novelization first, then I'll take you to see the movie, which to me was like win-win because I always wanted books and why wouldn't I want to read the book? And so I read the novelization and then my mom uh, held her into the bargain and took me to see the movie. And so um, I was obsessed with uh, Gremlins, it, and I still to this day think that it accidentally was one of those perfect movies. Um, there's things in it that could be updated, things that could have been better. Um, there's obviously no Shakespearean uh, level uh, plot going on there, but it's just a perfect time capsule of of that moment in cinema, and plus it was a perfect marriage of sort of just zany comedy and um, actual horror, you know, uh, terrifying horror and um, just a lot of fun. And I think that uh, Zemeckis uh, sort of hated uh, how it turned out. Um, I, I know that he prefers Gremlins 2 to Gremlins 1. That's the one where he got to do what he wanted to. And it is just a eyesore of chaos and fun. But uh, I really don't have any soft spot in my heart for it because I enjoy the first, uh, the first one so much. And so uh, it was interesting because I'd seen it so many times that I was still gleaning new things from it. And, um, and there are some things that I really found interesting. One was just the unrelenting uh, artifacts 
uh, in the movie. Uh, they weren't trying to make an 80s movie, but it was very 80s. Uh, everything from the pop cans that were featured with the old logos, um, you know, the toys that are on the shelves, the displays that are in the Montgomery Ward, the fact that Montgomery Ward is the big uh, fancy uh, um department store in town what small towns look like even though that wasn't a real small town it was the same back lot set that they use for back to the future but uh you know it, it just so much of it was just wonderful um kids uh you know um, being able to uh to uh, just sit through class and watch film strips as a part of the requirement for that day and uh, and how hokey and bizarre uh, even though they were informative, these film strips were. That was something that was a very 80s moment for us, and uh, my kids today don't have that same uh, that same experience. So the movie itself was a, is a weird time capsule for me. Um, but there's a few things that are sort of irritating about the movie as I watch it as an older man, and um, one of the things was is the placement. Now I've always been bothered and when I say this I don't say it lightly. Like people say it's always been my dream to be a baseball player. Well, I can't say that. I mean, although I've always wanted to be a writer, it hasn't always been my dream to be a writer. There was some point in my life where uh you know that that didn't cross my mind. I like to consume books. I didn't necessarily be, want to be the one to read them. I didn't really want to write, even though I did some writing. Um, I didn't really want to be a writer until fifth grade. I mean, I remember that moment when I got the bug. But one thing that has literally always bothered me, and I can say that as far back as I can recall, uh, in movies are kids' rooms. It bothers me the way that kids' rooms are staged in movies and television shows because they don't look like normal kids' rooms. And I've spent my entire life trying to either when I was a kid or when I was in my dorm room or as an adult when I'm allowed some space to have like a man cave, I've tried to arrange my rooms to emulate the classic amazing rooms that we see in media. Of course, the pinnacle being Ferris, excuse me, Ferris Bueller. But um, but everything is there so intentionally. And um, even when they make a messy-looking room, it's like messy intentionally. It just always looks fake. It always looks like someone put things. Um, in Gremlins, uh, Billy Peltzer is, is very into comic books. He wants to draw comic books. And there's all these little plot threads that they throw in there and never develop. They're maybe a little more developed in the book. Um, the book didn't 100% follow the screenplay, I'm told, anyway. Um, you know, So some of that was just conjured up as he was novelizing, just trying to hit word counts and so on. But... Um, uh, there was this whole subplot that he was trying to work on this comic book that he wanted to submit of his own. That uh, was sort of a barbarian, a barbarian style com, uh, comic book, which would make sense because you know most of the comic books that are in Billy's room are horror comic books and in Conan. Um, but uh, the way that his comic books are just kind of strewn around the room. Um, they're unfolded, they're open, they're on the floor, they're piled under painting supplies, they're all over his bed. No kid that I know has ever lived like that. If you're into comic books, you're not necessarily going to always shove them into uh, bags and boards. I mean, there was a time in the 80s when none of my stuff was in bags and boards, and like only people who were lucky enough to have access to a regular comic shop and not a newsstand would even know what bags and boards were. But um, 
But everybody's tended to keep their stuff piled uh, or in drawers or in boxes or in uh, folders. But no one just left them piled up everywhere. Sure, eventually your room would get messy. You'd have one comic book that got stray and you were too incredibly lazy to ever really pick it up. Maybe it would get ruined. Maybe get trampled underfoot. But no one had comic books literally just everywhere, especially on your bed. If your bed is your couch, your bed... Um, you know, your workbench, uh, as a lot of us kids uh, use our beds because it's the only space in our house that we have, you don't want it cluttered with a bunch of toys and comic books and books. So, you know, if he loved comic books that much, I wouldn't anticipate that there'd be such an irreverence for uh, caring for them. Um, they were all kind of strewn about just kind of intentionally. In no place in his room was there just a stack of comic books where you couldn't see what they were. They were always fanned out so you could see, you know, the the corner uh, matter or the title of the comic book or the image on the front. They were really working hard to subliminally, subliminally uh, sort of uh, build up that, you know, this is a kid that's, he's a monster kid, he's a horror kid, he's a dreamer, and so this gremlin thing Thing sort of fits right into his world. So uh, it's one of those intentional things that just was distracting and irritating and uh, it, just off-putting as it always is. Another thing that bothered me in the movie was the whole concept that, uh, and this has been said millions of times, I'm not original for saying this, and the book didn't help. The book tried to talk about how the gremlins could actually communicate with one another and they were uh, genetic uh genetically designed uh, by an alien race and that they lived on another planet and somehow Gizmo and Spike are like souls of gremlins that um, are sort of eternal warriors. Uh, they're always at odds with one another. But somehow Gizmo is the is the one that is good. That there's like one in whoever, however many thousands of gremlins that is benevolent. And uh, it bothers me because... Gizmo is is not normal for his race. Um, they all are evil except for him. They're all incorrigible. Um, and then when they turn into uh, you know the pod monsters, when they turn into gremlins instead of mogwais, they're they're evil. So they're mischievous by nature and evil uh, by uh, by their corruption by eating after midnight. And so. Um, and it's not the fact that they uh, reproduce that changes them. Uh, they're just naturally that way. Um, somehow Gizmo is just different. And um, that isn't really addressed. Um, they don't really talk about the fact that Gremlin or Gizmo is really just, uh, you know, um, a ham sandwich after midnight away from being a cold-blooded murderer. And so um, they sort of treat him with all this reverence and respect because he's the first one they meet and because he's a goody-goody. But uh, he's a dangerous animal. And, um, they, you know, even in E.T., there's some, uh, you know, the adults are the bad guys. But there's some discussion that, you know, E.T., you know, of course, you know, kids are the ones that believe in magic and they just want to get in the home. They understand what he's wanting to do and all that but you know things aren't all good with ET he is a you know wild animal he's a, an extraterrestrial animal and uh, so is Gizmo and um it's just interesting uh, that it's not handled in a way that they ever address the fact that he's anything but a po potential uh, killing machine 
no one questions the arrival of him uh, adequately, which is strange, but it sort of adds to the kind of cartoony uh, EC magazine feel of the script, um, which I think was maybe a misstep that turned out uh, like the perfect mistake and gave the film its tone. But, you know, it's one of those things that I think as a writer, you would have overwritten it a little bit because it's something that should have been done. Um, There were a lot of things within uh, the movie that just were sloppily done or done kind of against convention with some of the storytelling, and it worked. And um, luckily for the movie, it worked. Uh, the movie opened up against Ghostbusters, and I also saw Ghostbusters in the theater. My dad took me to see that, and the reason he took me to see that is because of the Saturday Night Live alumni that are in there. My dad has always had this weird sense of humor for a farm boy. He really loves weird, loud comedy. Uh, Jim Belushi, um, John Belushi, uh, Dan Aykroyd, all those guys have my always been my dad's favorites, and... Um, and it's weird because the guy just hates television. Uh, but uh, because there was a movie with them, I got to go see Ghostbusters. Um, and what a strange, strange movie to uh, open up against and uh, and to be memorable still. I mean, we really were spoiled that year by movies. If you go back and look at 1984, it was an incredible year. My dad also took me to see Return of the Jedi, which I think I've spoke about on Goad Kicker before. And my dad was probably climbing out of his skin the entire time, um, wanting out of that theater. But he did it as a favor of us kids. He took all three of us to see it. Uh, my brother would have been five years old at the time. My sister six and I ten. So uh, it, it would have been... It would have been an interesting uh, interesting time to climb into my dad's head. But 1984, wonderful, wonderful year for movies. So so anyway, I treated myself to Gremlins, and um, it was an interesting experience. There's a lot of things I, I like about Gremlins. Um, uh, one of the things I like about it was that uh, it's a true monster movie in that uh, at the end of the day, while the good guys win... The world has changed. Um, They don't get to just forget the monster. There's been some casualties. Now, they play it down because of uh, of the rating that's necessary, of the audience they wanted to appeal to. Um, the movie already is pretty intense for a kid's movie. It really occupies this weird space where it's written like a kid's movie at times, but it has very adult content in it. And, um, and it sort of works, again, uh, in spite of its own missteps, it seems to work. But, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, there's a lot of dead people. And uh, they blew up um, a movie theater. Uh, Billy and um, and, and uh, Kate, and um, there's got to be consequences of some sort uh, breaking into the to the uh, um, the Montgomery Ward at the end, and uh, sort of the mess that's made there. The fact that Billy has a crossbow injury <laughs> to his arm, which would take some serious. Uh, Rehab, uh, if he's lucky that that entire thing doesn't go south on him. Um, it just blows my mind, uh, some of the loose ends. And uh, I think as a writer or someone who has seen way too much media 
you can really think your way into disliking any movie. But that's one thing that strikes me about a good monster movie is at the end, the monster sort of has won even if they're defeated. Uh, the monster did what it wanted to do except for live. It destroyed and caused mayhem. And, uh, and, and Gizmo's still alive to cause problems in the future. It's really an interesting setup. Um, I always wondered how the old man got Gizmo. Um, I, I know that there's some discussion of that in the novelization, but my memory is not good enough to even recall that. Um, I, I wonder why, um, I wonder why the dog was such a critical part of the, uh, of the screenplay. It seemed weird, uh, that Barney was involved with so much, uh, it would have made sense to kind of set him up and then uh, use him to introduce Mrs. Deagle. But even Mrs. Deagle, they really only set her up just to be a jerk so that we could delight in her death. Um, the, the, there's a plot that she's trying to buy up all the real estate in town um, and sell it to a chemical company who wants to start a chemical plant in this idyllic little American town. And so... Um, I feel like that was another misstep that sort of worked out, but you know they they start they introduced a character and gave her a lot of screen time just to kill her. It seems pretty sadistic. Uh, one of the things I liked again back to the Montgomery Ward scene is um, is sort of window shopping through the store and ignoring the action that's happening on screen. Um, one of the things and it sets up one of the set pieces. Um, Billy goes into an audiovisual department in the department store and there's all these televisions and they turn on <coughs> pardon me they turn on and on one of the images is Spike and uh or Stripe excuse me is it Stripe or Spike wow how do I not remember it's Stripe right anyway um he shows up on the screen Billy smashes it and it's just a TV screen which is ridiculous. I think you would know the difference even in your terror. But um, the, the way he's doing it is he's using a, a home video camera that's on a tripod, which we later see revealed to us around the corner in the department um, with a sign that says, See Yourself on TV. This was not just a set piece designed to accommodate the script. This was something that actually existed in department stores in the heyday of the 80s. We had one in Council Bluffs called Richmond Gordman's. And I remember with, uh, with no uh, decay whatsoever the joy that I felt when my dad would let me wander in the electronics departments at these store. I would turn on the radios. I would look at records and cassette tapes. And I would get actual little kid dopamine ecstasy from seeing myself on television. There's something narcissistic and gratifying about how we emulated uh, people who were on television as being the ultimate level of fame. And then to see yourself on television, even though it's hooked up to a camera whose wires are less than seven feet long and going straight from the device to the television, um, there was something miraculously appealing about that. And I think in the adults that didn't lose that wonder or shared that experience, that drove sales of home video cameras because we could make movies about ourselves, about our vacations, about our backyard barbecues, and so on. 
And um, it's a very 80s thing, this, this preoccupation with television, the ability to use some of that technology at a home level, um, whereas before a movie camera or a television camera would be almost industrial equipment that no one would have at home. Um, it was at the birth time, <coughs> around the time that you know, VHS tapes were starting to be, uh, and VHS players were starting to find them, their way into homes a little bit more. And, um, you know, video games were already sort of had peaked and were starting to die as far as a home market. Um, it was just a, a wonderful time to be alive. And there are artifacts of all those things uh, in the um, Gremlins movie. There's something weird that they set up about Billy. Billy is a bit of an athlete, and they don't ever mention it. But if you look in the background of his room... Um, he has a lot of sporting equipment. He has books about bodybuilding and so on, tennis rackets. Um, and then they shot um, in uh, in uh, the, the Montgomery Ward scene uh, a considerably important and dramatic part of the climax happens in this sporting goods department as well. And I, I can't help but think that there's a draft of that script somewhere that pulls something together about that. Otherwise, it just seems like a weird coincidence. And again, uh, sort of that weird sort of staging of a teenage boy or, you know, uh, a not too far out of his teens boy, um, what his teenage room would look like. Of course, every teenage boy would have a bunch of 1960s manuals on calisthenics and uh, tennis form and all this other stuff. So there was a lot of choices made in both set decor and uh, and back matter that just boggle the mind if you look at them too hard. So anyway, it was a fun diversion. Um, as, as I get further into my writing career, I find myself looking at things differently. And, uh, and I definitely would say that the way that I watch movies is a lot different than I did before I got actively involved in writing myself. And... Um, it was fun that I could still enjoy the movie, I, which I did. It's an IP that I think has a lot of life in it. I'm surprised they haven't gone to that well more. Uh, we have two movies. One uh, is just this fever dream of fun, um, almost mocking the first one. And the first one was, you know, this significantly enjoyable and memorable movie for a lot of us. That everyone involved with, uh, except for uh, Billy, um, w would like to just forget or just poo-poo as something they did that year and they're surprised it's popular or um, just aren't all that thrilled with the end product. So... It, it was again. It's just an interesting movie. It's an inter interesting artifact. It's something I think will get reviews visited in the future. Who knows what the returns on that'll be? If it'll turn out like Pet Cemetery, and um, people will complain both that it's not enough like the original and that it's too much like the original. Um, and uh, who knows? Who knows what those future holds for Gremlins? But uh, as I said on the social media, I think this is an IP that would have been good for comic books. It might have been even better for video games. Can you imagine uh, going full gonzo on a Left 4 Dead style video game where the town is just slowly getting um, overrun by all these different varieties of gremlins and trying to keep them out of the water and keep them away from food and them swarming on you? I mean, it might resurrect the zombie style games that we're starting to get fatigued about 
uh, by using the same format with, with different mobs. And with Gremlins, it's a mob that makes sense in that format. And I would love to, like, co-op gun my way through um, through levels of the town uh, fighting Gremlins and all the weird attacks and, and bugaboos that come with, with them. And I, I just think that there's nothing but cinematic set pieces and fun uh, gaming tropes that can be had and none of it would seem artificial and weird because the IP is built for it. Um, it's a shame that uh, that it hasn't been done yet. <laughs> so Gremlins, if you want a nice uh, view on an afternoon when you're folding laundry um, and you're a man or a woman of a certain age, I would highly recommend it. The other movie I want to revisit in that same way is Willow. Um, it's not available for free viewing, and I kind of refuse to pay full price to watch Willow, but it's on my to-do list, and I imagine I'll have a similar experience, and I'll be sure to report back once I do. So, are there movies you want to review or uh, revisit, or are there movies that you have revisited lately and you have feelings about uh, differently as an adult? And uh, more uh, positively, are there movies that when you revisit them, you don't find your love diminished for them in any way? I would really like to hear about those movies. You can reach out to me on Twitter at CarlSmithWriter. You can send me an email, carlsmithwriter at gmail.com, and I'll discuss those in the future if I get responses because it's a very interesting thing um, to, to compile a list of things that held up and the reasons why. I would love to hear those things. And I think uh, when it comes to media, when it comes to movies and things like this, we're very quick to kick things around and kick them when they're down. Um, but uh, to compile a positive list where we all can kind of share uh, and maybe revisit some things from our childhood that still have a little magic left in them would be a wonderfully goad kicker thing to do. So please get a hold of me and let's discuss. Well, that does it for episode 15. It's Moleb Monday. We talked about gremlins. I don't know what more you want. This is about as goad kicker as it gets. The only thing I didn't do was throw a nerd church in here. <laughs> so um, one thing I just wanted to say before we depart is um, uh, one of the things that is difficult with nostalgia is remembering uh, accurately where you were or where the country was or where your family was emotionally or intellectually at the time something happened. And so so often we'll revisit a movie or an album and you'll be sort of shocked to hear them use certain language or certain things that pop up in the movie. Um, in the 80s, there are movies that now with what we understand and have educated ourselves on are straight up racist or rapey um, in ways they shouldn't have been nor were they responsible in their portrayal and um, and they wouldn't necessarily all be in um, adult movies uh, these things permeated our culture we had a real childlike uh, barbarian view of sexuality and um, our attempts at integrating race 
into our media were awful <laughs> and so often probably more harmful than had we just segregated the cast. But uh, somehow we rose above it and we've cured racism and there is no racism in the United States today uh, because we're all informed, right? Is that what we're saying anymore? Uh Racism is so disappointing, and um, that, you know I know that's an understatement, <coughs> and it totally sounds like something that a middle-aged white guy would say and expect people to pat him on the back for saying it, but I just don't understand why we're fighting about this anymore. Like, why people still have this weird alienation about folks that don't have the same background or pedigree that they have, uh, or... Um, Whatever you know, classism. I would expect it to last longer than racism, because it seems so below animal to look at someone who's a different color than yourself and immediately assume bad things and want bad things for them. It just seems like something that even the animals that live with us in our society, like dogs and cats, like you don't see them ganging up on. yellow dogs you know it just it's such a weird uh, nonsense philosophy that i just don't understand classism i could see uh because you get used to either being kicked around or kicking people around and someone has to be in those roles and you always assume uh that uh that the, the roles you're not in are somehow uh evil um uh, the ones that are unattainable or uh, or oppressive or the rules that are subservient to you. Um, you tend to think poorly of those. Classism seems like something that would be a little more difficult to assize from uh, society. But racism, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, sexuality, on the other hand, is so difficult because... You know, religion complicates it and biology, as far as uh, most of us bother to understand it, complicates it. And, um, but again, racism, it just doesn't quite fit. Uh, it seems like the first thing we should have evolved past, and it's just not happening. To wrap things up, I'll throw out there. I, I read a graphic novel recently, and this is from Cinebook. Cinebook is this wonderful company that imports Italian, French, uh, Belgian, uh, German comics into uh, English-speaking uh, publication. And so they're based in the U.K., and, um, and eventually they'll trickle, trickle over to the United States. But um, it's the only way we're going to have exposure to a lot of uh, classic uh, you know, European comic books, um, and some of the newer stuff. And, uh, I've had a lot of luck with the series that I've been able to read through Cinebook. I've talked about Cinebook in the past because they're notorious for editing. They edit out, uh, nudity and sexual content, um, pretty aggressively, uh, by, Redrawing uh, tank tops over naked women. Uh, there's panels that don't make sense when you go back and review them because a shirt's taken off, then she has a tank top on, and then she's partially in the next panel, and there's obviously no sign of the tank top on the back part of a rib cage that actually is in view. And so it's it's really odd uh, the way that they choose these things. Uh, but uh, 
But beyond that, they've, they've been my only uh, inroad to a lot of wonderful storytelling and writing and art that normally wouldn't have been available to me. So I, I love Cinebook and I support them and I'll only be a little bit mad. I, I don't necessarily need the uncensored art. I just think that's just the most butchery way to go about it. And if I was an artist, I would be pretty irate about it. But... Hopefully they're getting some royalty from it at least and, and not just uh, just irritation of their art being slaughtered. So, But the book that I read recently was called The Mermaid Project. And um, it, it's going to be an interesting science fiction um, cop procedural, uh, near future cop procedural. Um, but the premise behind the world that they're living in is that um, there's been ecological problems, a uh, big surprise, and that the colored people of the world, and when I say that, I don't mean just blacks, I mean everyone who's not Caucasian, decided that why in the world have we let them run the planet as long as we have just to result in this decimation and uh, this trouble? And they sort of take back society. And so society, European, uh, United States, United States, you know, Mexicans uh, tend to uh, populate the United States as the majority. In the, in the UK, um, there's, uh, you know, South Asian, uh, you know, India region and a lot of uh, African blacks and, and non-African blacks uh, and Spaniards have all sort of uh, taken over. Uh, position to power and white uh, Caucasian uh, typical protagonists that you see drawn in every comic book you've ever picked up um, are the minority and while the the protagonist of this particular story is that Caucasian which is a weird it's weird to make the commentary and still do it this way but um but she's the oddball she's the minority she is continually under uh underestimated and and um treated poorly within the police precinct because she is white and because she's a woman and uh the entire police precinct is black and no one wants to work with a white they give her grief they give her the worst assignments um, and it's just a weird commentary on racism, but uh, it's strange because they still make the white person the champion. And um, I don't know what I think about it. Uh, the story I, I, I love. I think this because it has nothing to do with the racism. There's something else going on in the story. I don't want to ruin it, um, and I don't want to review it either. But um, it's it's weird that they chose that backdrop, and I think what they're trying to say. Uh, about racial relations in the world um, is almost undermined by their execution. And um, again, I, I'm a white guy that's that's benefited from you know the sort of uh, privilege that comes with being me in the Midwest. But you know, I, I can't speak to this 100. percent But I, I just feel like they're sliding the people. I think that they were trying to spotlight. And some of it might be lost in the translation. Um, I'd be terrified to find out that it actually is sort of a punchline to a joke and that it actually was intended to slight uh, the darker races. Um, 
it doesn't come off that way when you read it, but again, it's translated, so uh, it would make the choice make more sense, but it would be very disappointing and hard to support if that was indeed the case. But um, it's an interesting view, and it's weird to see racism addressed as often as it is anymore, and it's almost always addressed as negative. Um, I don't mind sharing that I have a relative... Uh, well, I have several relatives who are racist, but I have a relative that's racist in the old white guy way um, that uh, it's irritating and unenlightened. But he loved Jackie Robinson and he likes to watch the court martial of Jackie Robinson. And he talks about how no one, you know, would give him the time of day and they spat on him. But he was such a great baseball player and he had this one coach that would believe in him. And they love these sort of race stories where there's the one noble black that rises above and uh, all the courageous white people that stuck by them and how rotten the racism was. But then their lives are filled with that same racism. And so everything that should have been fixed by these uh, moral tales of of, uh, of racial harmony should should be uh, is almost undone and it's so weird uh, to see racism addressed in movies and so on because it's always looked upon evilly there's very few movies where racism is explicitly um, uh, championed as the dominant and appropriate philosophy it's always the bad guy it's always the the, the derogatory part of the movie but then, so often, movies reinforce racism. It's so strange. And again, it's just one of those things where I don't understand it as, as an organism. I don't understand it as, as uh, creatures who are able to think and reason and to be educated and to, and to understand who they are in relationship to their environment. It just boggles my mind why racism has any part of any of that again not the foremost expert on this it's just something that is very disappointing and very odd and it's weird when it pops up in our media and I'm sure some of you are, are, are chomping at the bit to to say your piece about it or to to give examples uh, uh, or much better explanations or uh, assessments of of race in America or race in our comic books or race in our media and I would love to hear those uh, but uh, unfortunately this is sort of a one-way deal I talk and hit stop and the show's over so so get at me on Twitter and through the email or in person and let's chat about racism in our in our arts and in our culture and maybe we'll solve the world's problems between the two of us until next time everybody take it easy <laughs>